So I'd like to welcome all of you to these sweltering conditions of about 75 degrees. <laughs> about 30 degrees cooler than the rest of the country. <laughs> but still we find ways that we can complain about it, don't we? <laughs> so tonight uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, sort of the fundamental of the fundamentals of Dharma practice, and that's mindfulness. <clears throat> I was trying to think of an equivalent, it's probably equivalent to prayer in Christianity. It's sort of, at, sort of the bullseye of our instructions of the way the practice is organized around attention, around awareness. So mindfulness, of course, is a fundamental, but I didn't make it the first fundamental that we spoke about because I felt like there was a lot of preparation needed before we were even willing or able to handle this particular uh, attribute. Uh, because um, people often take it and sort of run with it as the essence of the practice and in so doing lose much uh, in that grasping. <clears throat> There's a lot about mindfulness that is involved in the preparation uh, rather than just the doing of it. The doing of it is fine, but if you want to take it to where it encourages us to go, then we have to have some background knowledge. It's interesting in the Eightfold Path that mindfulness is the not the first rung, but the, actually the seventh rung, seventh, seventh step of the Eightfold Path, which shows the preparations that's needed just to get or arrive at that destination. And so it's an important destination, there's no question, but uh, hopefully the talks prior to this one will have allowed us to prepare for what it really means to be mindful and to begin to look at the differentiation between mindfulness uh, and awareness on one hand and secular mindfulness as it's being taught now worldwide and spiritual mindfulness, which is based within the Buddhist tradition and has a whole context out of which it moves. So I'll try to bring those up uh, this evening as I speak. <clears throat> but let me uh, take you back to last June when I attended a Buddhist conference in Garrison, New York with several hundred other Buddhists from around the country as well as people who were teaching mindfulness like uh, the uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Johnny kabat was there as well as many of his supporters and uh, assistants. And so uh, I, was, um, I was actually delighted to have us all in the same room together, uh, partially because uh, it, for the first time it dawned on me what we were all doing. And what I mean by that is that we were all encouraging uh, the species, our species, in becoming more conscious. And when I looked at it from that point of view, I wasn't quite as judgmental about how somebody was teaching it in the, as I was with the very fact that each of us were having our place to play within that teaching. Because some people just can't hear it if it's in, outside of their spiritual tradition of Christianity or Judaism or whatever, or if you bring in a a foreign word like Buddhism uh, into a scientific-based country like this one, uh, then you get a lot of rub, you get a lot of pushback. I said, fine, so secular mindfulness or mindfulness that is being taught free of the underpinnings of religiosity is a very important component to how this whole thing is being attended to in this country and other Western countries because it is showing scientific results. People who practice it and then put themselves through a variety of tests from CAT scans to other imaging techniques. They're showing that the brain is developing certain capacities that it didn't have without being mindfulness, as well as uh, an increased immunological response and lowered blood pressure and on and on. I mean, it's wherever you go, if you do a little bit of this, it helps you out, basically. 
So if somebody says they have a sore toe, I'll say practice mindfulness. <laughs> Somehow it works. I don't know exactly. <laughs> so basically, it's a, it's, it, it, paying attention improves whatever we're doing. Now that to us is like, well, that's not even, that's pre-kindergarten, right? Of course paying attention. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what, how could we have missed that in this culture for as many years as we've been? Why wouldn't we link paying attention and improvement together? <laughs> like being conscious of something, when you actually know what's occurring, then you can do something about it. Of course, it's going to enhance whatever it is that you're going to be able to do something about. If your car uh, is suddenly, um, it suddenly stops at the, at, uh, in the road and you know nothing about the mechanics of the engine, well, that's it. You get on your cell phone and you wait a while for some mechanic to show up. But in the same way, if you know nothing about your mind and it starts raising all sorts of cantankerous struggles and irritations and annoyances and anxieties, and we know nothing about the mechanics of it, we're kind of lost because even the per people we turn to know nothing about the mechanics of the mind because they don't have the awareness to know the actual way the mind works. But now as this sense of mindfulness begins to filter through our culture, some people, therapists among us, are beginning to understand how the mind works. Well, when we ourselves have that ability, we can work with it. And so it's just that ability to see what is occurring within us, which is the definition of mindfulness, knowing what is arising. It's like opening the hood of the car and actually beginning to look at what it is that's happening to the engine. <clears throat> Instead of just beating around on it with a hammer, which is equivalent to what we, most of us do when something goes wrong and we're not mindfulness, we just judge ourselves for being whatever it is that we're doing, we judge ourselves by beating ourselves up for it, well, paying attention improves everything. So, of course, we find this as a result. Some people are calling this, you know, the current uh, mental health disposition as if it's going to be just a fleeting thing and then they'll move on to something else. Well, what's it going to move on to? Once you start paying attention, what's after that? More attention is what's after that. So if you have money to bet on mindfulness based, put your money on that one because it's not going away. In fact, it, uh, once you open the tap, you can't close it back up. So we're in this for the long haul. But let's be real honest about what we're doing. So when I look out upon people who do uh, cognitive therapies with mindfulness or stress reduction or whatever it is that they're accomplishing with it, I have to ask myself the spiritual question of whether this carries people as far as it would if it were organized in the way the Buddhists organize their mindfulness. And the answer in my heart is no, it doesn't. And so I think it's a good start. It picks everybody up. It gets everybody um, authenticating awareness as a beautiful place to start in our lives. But it keeps us within the same paradigm we've always been in. It allows us to improve that paradigm. It allows us to release some of the pain and tensions within this paradigm. It makes us uh, better at whatever we do, including losing weight or whatever it is when you pay attention. But the spiritual mindfulness is really a change of paradigms. It's one, this is uh, one way, this is a, an attribute of the way that we change paradigms. The point is, though, that we are moving ourselves into a spiritual paradigm. We're not staying in the one that we've always been in and just kind of improving things and making it a little more comfortable for ourselves. We're actually changing the very nature of the way we see, the way we perceive. 
Now, one will give you satisfaction. The secular uh, paradigm will give you satisfaction. But the spiritual paradigm is a yearning of the heart. It's, won't be, it, it's not satisfied with a little bit of adjustments or fine-tuning. It really is a calling from something very deep inside of us that intuits or senses that we're doing something. There's a basic flaw in what we are doing and how we are perceiving. And so in that sense, we can't separate out mindfulness from the rest of the Eightfold Path. It doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense at all. And so in that sense, we have to bring this, if we're interested in the yearning of the heart, in the completion of the spirit, then we have to take this a step farther. Not that the other is wrong in any way, it's just limited. And so we want to keep this thing unlimited, we have to come into a different equation, a different way of, of working with this mindfulness. Now, let me just, before we get too deeply into this thing, let's just, you know, just establishing attention. You know, the first time you call attention forth, it's quite amazing that you actually have the ability to attend. I mean, we've known that we've had the ability to attend, but we didn't realize what was limiting that attention. When we tried to pay attention, suddenly our minds were lost in the thoughts we were having or about what we were paying attention to, and we didn't differentiate between the thoughts that were leading us away from what we were paying attention to and the attention we were paying to something. And it's, when we get well trained, though, we begin to see that there's only two directions the mind can go. It can either get lost in thought or it can be attentive. That's the only two places your mind will ever go. Right? And so, if you're going to stay within the world as you have known it to be, then that confusion will reign forth for the duration of your life. When you begin to decipher the dif dif difference between thinking about something as if you are paying attention and paying attention without thought, then you begin to really understand the difference that mindfulness makes that paying attention to something makes. So much of our early practice has to do with the efforts that we bring to bear upon separating out consciousness from thought. And it's a little bit like straining the most, uh, the smallest ingredients out of some kind of liquid. You know, we have to use very, very fine mesh gauze to filter out that liquid so that it gets very pure. And at some point, most of us get kind of, uh, we, we don't want to, we don't, we'll just, you know, it's improved enough, we've improved our lives enough, we'll just take the mixture of thought and attention and not try to strain out anymore. And we've done what we wanted to do, we've gotten better, we've gotten over some of our major difficulties, our life feels like it's, up, uh, it's on the mend rather than on the decrease, and we'll just kind of let the rest go. And so many of us bail out, most of us probably in our beginning classes bail out at some point, uh, and they feel like they've really understood mindfulness, and they've understood the links between their stress and their body tension, or whatever it is that they've been focused on as their particular source of suffering. And that's good enough. <clears throat> but for the person who wants to move this thing towards the actual satisfaction of the heart, the completion of the heart, it's never enough. If there's one particle that sifts through that liquid, that gets our attention. We refuse. Once the tap is open to this extent, it just keeps pulling us in more and more into its gravitational pull, into its way of being. And it, there's no way we can turn it off, nor do we even want to turn it off. Because when we don't bring our attention to bear upon this essential, 
we feel it in our lives. For a while we can be, you know, joyful in our indulgence, and then after a while we get miserable in our indulgence because it's not satisfying anymore. Where it used to be, it's not anymore. And then we have to begrudgingly turn back towards our spiritual practice and begin to see and look with even more refined interest and curiosity. So that's the general way that most people move into their spiritual journey. This sense of mindfulness is the first indication that we have anything holy within us, really. Before that, we've quite likely been praying outside of ourselves for some holy representation towards some god, towards some, I don't know, whatever people pray to. But when we start being aware, there's a sense in us, I hope we all feel it, even as I speak, sense of us of something being sacredly here that is not, that I don't have to, I don't have to lean or find or discover or search my way towards, that there's something intrinsically sacred to this process of being. Now that may take a while because many of us in the West are very filled with doubt. And so we may sense that that's there, but then quickly doubt that that would be in us. After all, how could it be in somebody who is as, as gross and as whatever ways that we define ourselves? How could it be in us? It could be in somebody else, but it couldn't be in me. And so there's this whole searching that goes on until we recover the true disposition of mindfulness, which is, it is in us. It's here. It's not in somebody else more than it's in me. I may lose it more often, but I don't, it's not in someone else more than it's in me. How could it be? In that same conversation, I just share this with you because I just, along that same point, it dawned on me. One of the uh, presenters stood up and said, you know, well, I've had, I've had this teacher and that teacher, and he was a, somebody about my age. <clears throat> and he said, you know, it just feels to me like this generation of teaching is never going to rise to the equivalence of our teachers. And I thought, that's nonsense. I don't feel like that at all. I don't feel like that at all. That's saying that somehow we're diminished in our capacity. That's nonsense. And I hope you feel that nonsense. It doesn't mean that your awareness is as clean, as pure as perhaps the teacher's teacher's teacher. But to ever think that this generation is suffering or lacks the potential or lacks the equivalency is just complete nonsense. Nonsense throws everything back to square one. And it shows how deeply embedded our doubt is in this culture. We take our place. What do we think we're doing when we're sitting here? You see, it's not just we're sitting here for 45 minutes hoping the bell will quickly ring so that I can become more comfortable. We're sitting here confirming something. We're sitting here steadfast. We're sitting here unmovable. You see, these are words that are far richer than the posture we're taking, that are intoned into the posture, but which we don't give credit to. We don't give enough assertion and credibility to the fact that this body, in its absence of movement, is making a statement of steadiness and steadfastness within itself. That there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to be. There's nowhere else to look. That this is it. It starts here, it ends here, period. That's it. No apologies, no excuses. This is it. And we sit. We sit clear, we sit straight. We don't sit with any folded shoulders, creating a disposition of disbelief or doubt. We sit firmly, squarely within ourselves. Let us not forget that the very posture we sit from is the expression 
of that wakefulness. And it's intrinsic to mindfulness itself. You see, mindfulness feels very self-contained, and that's its, its value and its limitation early on. It is self-contained. If I didn't do it, I'd be lost in thought, because if we spend our whole life looking at cartoons, you only think in cartoons. You only think in images and fantasies. That's all you ever do. And so for us to suddenly want to arrest the flow and movement of those images, stop it, and start seeing in a different way, well, you can see the force of, that we're up against in doing so. So it feels as if it takes an enormous amount of energy to reassert our, our attention towards something else. In this case, the absence of thinking towards the actual experience of living. It's only that way because we trained ourselves to be the other. That's the reason it feels like it's so hard to do. And so we keep bringing our mind back, keep bringing our mind back, keep bringing our mind back. It's like, you know, when you first uh, learn to ski, you keep falling down because your body hasn't learned the mechanics of how to, to move. It's only walked on the earth on solid ground. It hasn't learned how to ski on ice. And so it's the same thing, exactly the same thing, really, in terms of learning how to hold the mind in ways that doesn't betray what we really want from it, which is clarity, which is contact, which is connection. And so for most people, they have to go through this sort of tug of war process. And it goes on for some time in people's practice, depending upon how, sin how often you practice and your sincerity within the practice. It could go on for a long, long period of time where you just tugging yourself out of thought. Now, why is that? Why does it go on much longer in some people than in others? It's because that 45 minutes once a day, how much does that weigh against the other 23 hours and 15 minutes when you give yourself back to the fantasy world of thinking? Well, that was nice, so I had a great sitting. Now let me think about what my life has been like in the past 10 years and where I'm going in the next 10. It can't withstand your intention to move it away from what you've just been doing. If your intention is to think in the, that kind of imagery the rest of the day, then that 15 minutes doesn't stand much of a chance of sustaining your effort. You see? <clears throat> so this sense of mindfulness is not an isolated time when we're sitting and just being mindfulness with body straight and being present. It, you begin quickly to realize that this requires a 24-hour intention from us. Let's call it 16, because I don't know, I won't involve sleep at the moment, although some people are lucid dreamers. So this is, this is the reason that the Eightfold Path lays out the whole disposition of life. It doesn't have, okay, Number seven step mindfulness. Hell with the other eight, seven. I'm just going to that seventh step. I'll just stay there, do my 45 minutes and everything. Then all of God's glory will show itself. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. What do you want from your life, you see? When we ask that question, which I've asked repeatedly over the many years I've been teaching, it's for a point. Until we answer that, that's where our intention is going to go. Until we answer what we want from our life in spiritual ways, until the answer is a spiritual, I want what? Love. I want connection. I want something that is more meaningful than the embellishment of pleasure and indulgence of good feelings. Until we can answer it other than that, we will be forever pulling and pushing away f with our thinking. Okay? And I've also given us lots of opportunities to explore the value and limitation of the life you're living so that your energy will be extracted from that pursuit and come back to where it's originally based, authentically based, which is in the experience of life, not in the thoughts and images about it. So until we 
said to ourselves what my life is going to be about and then looked at what my life is going to be about, no matter what answer that question offers us, and then scrutinized that <clears throat> to see the value and limitation of what those pursuits are offering me, there's nothing that the wisdom, the understanding, never comes forth unless we ask that question. And so the, the energy doesn't get extracted from those pursuits. And when they're not extracted from those pursuits, thoughts continue, images continue. Meanwhile, we struggle 45 minutes a day just getting there in our seat, let alone when we're there trying to figure out what's a thought and what's our breath or what's our experience, and on and on it goes. So this is very fundamental to our practice. I mean, it, does, it doesn't clear up because we're not willing to have it clear up, not because God's doing it to us or I'm giving you the wrong instruction. Go out and get instruction from someone else and see if it clears up quicker with, with them, if you'd like. It, we're the ones that hold ourselves in bondage through our intentionality. So now you begin to say, okay, mindfulness requires an intentionality. Intentionality requires an investigation and an understanding, or the intentionality, as much as I would like it to be towards the spiritual, actually go towards the worldly. And I can't change that just by wanting to change it. I have to change it by seeing the limitation of the worldly, so then it does authentically move towards the spiritual. That's how it works. It works through our understanding, not through our effort. So most of us, being an effortful kind of person, thinks, well, I just haven't. See, we always, we're the one, we always blame us because we have such low opinions of ourselves. <clears throat> it's working for Jim on this side, David on this side, Tom on that side, Susan behind me. I'm going to pretend it's working for me, too. <laughs> and it's kind of a mass hysteria that we all, you know, we open our eyes and think, uh, am I the only one in the room? No, you're not. Everybody's got one eye open asking that question. <laughs> it takes deeper resonance. It takes deeper intentionality. It takes deeper sincerity for us. You know, we got, okay, so this, is, this isn't going to work unless I authenticate the practice through my own sincerity. Okay, so I have to be very sincere. Now mindfulness is coupled with sincerity. I'm just bringing things in that enhances your mindfulness. Most of which I've already talked about in the other X number of talks in this series. Intentionality. View. Like, where's this thing taking me? What's the perceptual shift that it's taking me out of? What's the paradigm shift? Is it just a lot of singular events and people and objects and me struggling with each one of those individuations in front of me? Is that what is that? No, it's not. And our mindfulness begins to show us it's not. It begins to give us a sense of the intimacy and boundarylessness, boundarylessness of life. Because where are those boundaries when I sit down? Close my eyes, where are they? It's like groping as a, as a, uh, in Braille. I can't find them unless I assert them. When I assert them, I assert them from my ideas, from my opinions, from my thought. There the boundary is as I think it into place. It's like being in the air plane 30,000 feet looking down on the earth and trying to see where Poland starts and Czechoslovakia begins. Doesn't, you can't see it. And nor can you see it when you close your eyes and don't offer yourself a thought about your own boundaries. They're not existing at that level. And when they don't exist, you begin to get a sense that, well, if that doesn't exist, how about this boundary? That doesn't exist. How about that boundary? And that doesn't exist. How about inside and outside? How about you and me? Whoa, now the view 
comes in. The Buddha mentioned it, told us, pointed to it. Now the view begins to structure how it is that we work within mindfulness, you see? Now we're not just trying to end stress here. That was important at one point. Okay, I'm not making fun of stress reduction. It's just limited. If you don't want to be limited, you can't stay there. Use it when you feel stressed and then move on. Or when you have cognitive impairment or whatever it is. I mean, you, can, you always have that. Once you've learned the mechanics of how the mind works, you always have that skill. You don't lose it. You go, oh, I have a headache. All right. I haven't had it. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but you always have the skill to fix. And then you don't, but you don't sit there and just wait for a headache to show up. So you can express, you just, you move on. You move on with this thing. This is much bigger, much bigger. Now, okay, so. <laughs> so we're still on mindfulness. And we're still uh, self-centered mindfulness. And, and that sounds disparaging, but I, it's not. It's just that it's being driven by me. When I want to feel my hand, I say, okay, mindfulness. It's like, okay, tool. Let me feel my hand. You can see the prison I make out of that whole equation. My mindfulness, my hand, may I feel it. Okay, so it's my effort, my direction, my hand that I'm feeling, my boundaries. I mean, it's a whole thing is so covered with like layers of molasses. It's, it's amazing that any attention can be seen at all. Because let me explain something to you. The sense of you driving your mindfulness is a blindfold, is a blindness of mindfulness. The sense that you're driving it, that you're in charge of it, is ignorance. is the unconscious pushing the conscious. The sense of you is unconscious. You think you're someone because you're unconscious to what you really are. So that part of you that affirms yourself as being the person who's being mindfulness is the lack of mindfulness. Do you see that? This is very important. So I'm not, until every head nods. <laughs> okay. Just get it conceptually, because then you can go back and work with it. Okay, so when you're saying, I'm going to be aware of my hand, you're already about eight streets back from where you want to be. It's not a hand. It's not yours. There's no boundary here. You're not directing it. And you certainly aren't in charge of where it goes. You are on some kind of, I mean, I don't know how, you just, okay, I want to be in touch with my fingertip. You can be in touch with your fingertip. The whole thing is covered with a whole bunch of blinders and blackouts and, okay, but yeah, okay, fingertip, got it, yeah. But if you want to move where the spiritual, if you want to change paradigms, okay, this, you can't bring yourself along with you in meditation. You can't do it. You just can't do it. And that's why I keep bringing up, see, the whole thing is to bust you apart, not to keep you chiseled and in place throughout this duration. If you did that, you would have the same paradigm 30 years later that you have now, but you'd be, what? I don't know. You would have fewer headaches, I guess. This thing is to break us apart. The whole point of the Eightfold Path is to throw this thing wide open. Right? That's why it's so limiting to keep mindfulness just in stress reduction. I mean, it's okay for people who just all they want to do is to feel better. That's okay. But for somebody who's spiritual, we've got to break this mold. Come on now. Okay, you don't have to call it Buddhism, but you have to look at yourself. And so when you start seeing yourself, you see the last thing you want to see is yourself because 
The unconscious doesn't want to admit it's been unconscious. It would love to say, I'm a, being co I'm a conscious person. No such thing, that's an oxymoron. No such thing as a conscious person. Okay, so now your attention has to be released from the script it's been under. It has to be released from the control that's been, been, that's been influencing, my control. What is the control that's, that's doing this? What, what is the my that's taking ownership of this? And this is where mindfulness, which is, I define as a self-controlled conscious attention, comes into awareness, which is pre-existing the formation of the person. And that's that boundary that's so hard. It's been hard all along the way. So I'm not trying to say that those of you who are new to the meditation haven't been doing... It's hard then. It's hard in the middle. But this becomes... The, the resistance get, It's not harder in terms of effort. It's more resistance to seeing. I'm not sure I want to go here. I kind of like being me. Okay, that's a beautiful and honest and authentic statement. Now go out and be you and see its limitation. Don't blame the limitation on your weakness as a person. Don't say, you know, I'm just not up to it or I'd have it all like the beer commercials, if, but I just don't seem to be able to get it all and it must be because I'm not as advantaged as other people. Nonsense. The beer commercial's wrong. There's a flaw. It's intrinsic in living that there is a flaw. The flaw is that you have yourself, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have some struggle. It's not, you didn't do it to yourself. It's part of what you built up this thing upon. When the world is seamless and you put seams in it, you're going to have some problems because it's not like that. It doesn't have seams. It doesn't have boundaries. You put boundaries there, then you're going to have some problems with boundaries rubbing, aren't you? There aren't any boundaries, but conceptually you put them there. And you have a boundary of yourself and other things external to you, you're going to have a lot of rub. They're not there. But if you keep claiming that you're just not strong enough of a person, you're going to have more rubs, not less, because you're building greater and thicker boundaries for yourself against the world. You see? Every face has to nod. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it is 75 and we're all st suffocating here. <laughs> I wonder how that sounds to the people. In Florida. <laughs> okay. But you don't want to see this? You don't want to see that? I mean, perceive it without boundaries? Do you want to see it from your logic? Do you want to see it from your opinion? Do you want to see it from your knowledge? How do, you, how do you see that flower? It's pretty and let's move on. So you really get a sense of what the flower sermon was about. That's what we're talking about here. The fulfillment of life. Living that fulfillment. Living that fulfillment. And mindfulness is the tool we use to get to the point where we no longer need it. It's not a tool that we use long after we've seen through the need for it. Because what takes over when we discard the sense of individuation, when we are no longer convinced of ourselves being separate, and that's taken, for most of us, a lot of inquiry to get there. What is this thing? Just the willingness to ask is a tremendous, overcoming tremendous resistance. 
But the willingness to ask begins the process of seeing. You can't force that asking. The asking comes naturally, comes organically in the course of one's practice. When does it come? It comes when you have released the forced effort of securing your place in life. When you have said, you know, it's just not worth it. Now, that, when you've relaxed a little, when you've come back into the armchair of life a little bit and you're not working it so hard, then you'll explore the sense of self. Up until then, you need the sense of self so desperately for whatever reasons you think you need it, prestige, power, acclaim, whatever it is, you're not going to ask that question. It's too threatening. But when you're kind of like, oh, I'm sick of this. And for some people, it happens quite early. For most of us, it comes later. And you think, okay, so see, that's, that's awareness unleashed. Right? I like that. Unleashed. Because it turns back on you. Not in malevolence, but in benevolence. Because it doesn't want to leave you out there alone. It wants to bring you along with it. It's life serving life. It's life meeting life. And it comes back in and flushes out the contours, the congestion, the misrepresentation, the, the ignorance that has kept it so bound. It comes back at you. But as long as we're pushing it out by holding our mindfulness to a particular point, to a particular focus, to a particular, then it won't come back because we're driving it out. But when you just say enough, you know, and each tradition has within it built in like centering prayer in Christianity where you're no longer asking God but allowing God to inform. Or like shikantaza in Zen, which is just sitting, doing absolutely nothing, putting force in, not putting any force in any direction at all, allowing life to come back in and serve itself, to find its own way through, because long since have we realized we can't do it. We don't have the power to discover ourselves. We have the power to unleash mindfulness. That's what we just, I can't do it. It's, it's almost pathetic. I can't do it. It's like a little kid, except it doesn't have that kind of sense of despair. It's like, I can't do this. I just can't do it. Now, each of us have to find our way into the right structure of our doing, okay? I may not be the best teacher for your structure, your need for structural doing. Find a teacher that speaks to you directly to your need to do, but never be, never be convinced that your need to do is the end game, right? So each one of us, and I don't know, you know, I don't know where you are on this continuum. Each of you have a certain need to continue yourself moving further along. But you're not going to hear so much of that as I get older. You're going to hear less of that. So we have to evaluate. You don't owe any loyalty to me. You owe loyalty to what feeds your heart, where you hear it, your own sense of resonance in your own heart. And then you just keep working it, though, but never stop within the boundaries, because sometimes, no matter who's speaking, they're boundaried within their speaking. They limit your freedom by their view, and if you hold or enter their view, you're held within their view. But the Buddhist view is unlimited. It does, there's no limits on it. 
So never feel that you have to stay within any view that's limited. You can stay within it, work it the way you want to, but don't feel constricted. That's it. I'm out of here when the time is right. Because the time will be right when your heart will be mature and nurtured by not the presence of boundaries and security, but by their absence. The full yearning, the unleashing of the full yearning of the heart. Where all you want to do is go to the trough and drink. And you're tired wasting any more time doing so. So this is a beautiful way of being fed. You see, and we bring the heart along, that's what's so beautiful. The heart comes along. It doesn't, we don't bring it along. And sati, which is mindfulness, in Buddhist terms, you never see sati written alone. It's always sati sampajana. Sampajana is clear comprehension. Sati, awareness, and clear comprehension. So it's not so focused that you miss the context out of what's, what's how something is arising. Why is that important? Because that's the heart. Unless there's clear comprehension of what you're doing, there'll be no relationship except the truth of what you're doing. Right? You're fat. That's very helpful, thank you. Right? May be true, that may be your focus, but it's not at all helpful for somebody to hear that. The sampajana gives you the context of, of how to say it, when to say it, what certain readiness, even why say it. You see, that's the heart. The heart comes in and gives context. The awareness, if it's too brittle, too truthful, and I don't mean that sampajana isn't truthful, it's just truthful in context. But we can get very dogmatic and righteous with our sati and drive it down somebody's throat. So listen to that, you see. You want to listen to that in yourself. Where's the heart in this? The heart gives us space, gives us breath, gives us connection. That's what we're doing. Awareness doesn't necessarily give you, mindfulness doesn't necessarily give you connection. It has, to, it has to have a broader, a broader context, and then you get the connection. Okay, I think I'm going to stop. Thank you all very much. We'll sit for a couple of minutes here if we could. Stay within yourself. See, all the other talks really come into this one. Staying within yourself. Don't say, oh, well, how come I'm not asking questions that are deep and, and where's my sincerity? I don't have any sincerity on it. Don't do that. No whining. <laughs> stay within yourself here. Stay within yourself. Ask the questions that are meaningful for you to ask. But ask them. Look at the boundaries that you're imposing. All your pain arises because of imposed boundaries. All pain. So we're not asking anything of you other than to end suffering here. So if it's stressful, that's an ending, that component of suffering. Tension, fearful. You get so interested in all this, you never want to stop. It's like the mind can't bring anything forth that you're not interested in. Even fear. It's like, wow. 
You don't like it, but you get very interested in the fact that it's occurring. I had a panic attack. Wow, I couldn't believe it. Look at that. It's so interesting. Next time it happens, I'm going to... See? It's not like... So much of the perpetuation of anything is how we <coughs> infuse it with our aversion. But when you get interested in this whole thing and the boundaries it creates, the superimposed boundary it creates, and whoa, everything is open. Everything becomes a delight. Okay, good. So, have any questions or comments that you'd like to ask? I'd be happy to. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Kathy. Right. Yeah, sure, sure. First, I, I don't ever want you to feel um, that any question you ask is okay. You just ask it. All right, everyone. You, that no. You, if you have a question, you should have heard me when I was. I was really obnoxious. None of you are anywhere close to the line. <laughs> so, okay, I made the statement about there's nothing, uh, it's an oxymoron to say a conscious person. It's what I was saying about the sense of personhood, the sense of self, the sense of me is itself the absence of, of awareness. If you really saw what was there, you would never referred to it as me, or I, or me, or mine. I mean, you would functionally, but you wouldn't, and it wouldn't be a convincing term to you. But it's a convincing to us because we just, we don't call our attention back to see what it is that we're referring to by those labels. And over time, you begin to call your attention back a little bit to see what it is, and you don't find what you thought was there. You don't find a solid person. And you realize that when you do claim I, me, and my reference, it's because you're not bringing your attention back there and seeing clearly that you're nobody. You're claiming reference as if you were somebody. That reference is coming because you're basing what you're saying on a memory, right? And that memory holds itself as eternal, doesn't it? A memory is like fixed. It's not changing. And so the memory when we are identified with a memory, the person who is identified with that memory is also not changing. They're also part of that. You see that? So when you're, like if I see an oak tree and the memory of what that is comes to mind in all the previous experiences with oak trees or raking leaves or whatever, all that comes to mind it makes me feel very three-dimensional as I speak about that being my oak tree in my yard. But if I go back and look at what that eye is based upon, it's based upon a sense of images and thoughts coming up around that particular form and expression of that form. And that the identification with that expression creates the sense of me in memory. So I see that. Now it's wide open. When I was relating to it from the sense of I, I was blind to that projection. And therefore, that, that's a limitation of awareness. Awareness has to be 360. It can't be 270. It can't even be 359. It has to be 360. It has to be complete. So wherever it is that we're covering, if it's 270 because we have a 90 degree angle of self, well, that's blindness. That's 90 degrees of blindness. Even though you have 270 of consciousness, you have 90 degrees of blindness. Now that 90 degree of blindness affects the 270 of consciousness. 
This is way, I'm just kind of talking here, okay? So don't, don't take notes on this. How does that work? How does it work that the sense of I, because it's claiming reference, once it's activated, the sense of I is activated, then the memory is activated, and the memory starts claiming everything within the field of what it thinks it's being conscious of. Oh, I know what that is, I know what that is, that, that, that. Everything is known, even though you think you're being conscious, really you have one degree of consciousness and 359 of ignorance. And you go, wait a second here, I'm, I'm on a roll. Whether you realize it or not. <laughs> so you go, okay, say, so wait a minute, what if I didn't know, what if I didn't know anything? And there it is. Now it's 360. Standing nowhere. In fact, there's no place to stand. But the, I mean, we do it to ourselves. It's not, you know, I want to know what that is. So we make it known to us. And in so doing, we limit what it really is, is I don't know. When we know what it is, we obscure the I don't know. And so the I know is the unconscious part of me that's coming from memory. The don't know what it is, is the conscious part of me that sees its innocence. So when we say we know something, we're obscuring the innocence with the memory, the I knowing function, the memory, and the whole thing becomes laced with self and ignorance. Anyway, other hands. Let me see if somebody, yes, over there somewhere. You're pointing to somebody, Alan? Oh, yes. You bring it in. There's nothing outside of yourself. Okay, so the poem, don't, don't let the poem go, okay? The point is that there is never any disagreement about what is happening if you don't make it happen as a disagreement. So the symphony was beautiful, and if I don't pit that against the, all the applause, the beauty of what I'm holding on and maintaining in my heart is covered over by the noise of the applause. If I, if I don't draw those distinctions, where is there a problem? The poem did. That's why I want you to leave the poem alone, okay? So then the applause happens. Where is there a problem? There's no problem unless we make it by memory saying, oh, I remember how great that violin concerto was, or piano, whatever it was. I wish it were still going on rather than all this applause. It, I mean, that's what we do all day long. On a minute scale, we're always pitting one thing against the other, and then we're upset when the beautiful ends and the unbeautiful begins. Right? 
so if you just if you if you bring no boundary in between the where did the beautiful end and the unbeautiful begin you see if you don't okay so my oh, I so enjoyed the concert and then there was the if you don't do that there's no boundary there is there if it just went like this Yes, it's seamless. All of you, what you're having, what you're actually having, are a continuous stream of experiences. Some of which you don't like, and some of which you do. But the stream doesn't differentiate. If you just surrender the differentiation of the stream of consciousness that's occurring, all experiences, where is there a problem? To do so, you have to relinquish the need to remember what each of those things was because embedded in the memory is your liking and not liking it as well. Well, it shows up in the body as maybe tension or stress. No, it shows up in the mind. Well, the or if it shows up in the body, it's still memory. It doesn't matter. Listen, I, this isn't, okay? So just look and see. Just see whether this is a continuous stream of experiences and I differentiate the ones I like from what I don't like and when I do so, what occurs? Just ask that question. That's all. Okay, we have to end it for this evening.